Welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's true crime podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There is a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Buckle up, because it's going to be a bumpy ride. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. I'm your host, Barry McGuire. I'm a 20-year private investigator in the Boston, Massachusetts area and a true crime aficionado. Today, we're going to be covering the Boston Marathon bombings of 2013. This is literally the worst crime that's ever happened in the city of Boston. The bombings themselves were bad enough, but the ensuing carnage that occurred after the bombings, the killing of MIT police officer Sean Collier and the ensuing chase through Cambridge in Watertown, Massachusetts, has been one of the most frightening stories relayed on Boston media, literally in its history. The Boston Marathon bombing took place on April 15th, 2013 at 2.50 p.m. Everybody's familiar with the carnage, the aftermath, the chase through the city of Boston, Cambridge, and Watertown. What people are not familiar with is this was the end of the story for the Zanayev brothers. It certainly wasn't the beginning. This story has all the elements of a James Patterson thriller. CIA involvement, the FBI holding back on local law enforcement, radical Islamists planting bombs, committing horrific murders, using swords and genital mutilation to terrorize the population. We have a very special guest today on Boston Confidential. I've conducted an interview with former Boston Herald reporter Michelle McPhee. She's written a book called Mayhem, Unanswered Questions About the Zanayev Brothers, the U.S. Government, and the Boston Marathon Bombing. This book will blow your mind. The start of the Zanayev's immigration to the United States begins with CIA involvement, and it ends with the Boston bombing in 2013. You have to buy this book. If this case has affected you, if the bombings have affected you, if you felt sad about it, now you're gonna feel angry because there was a cover-up in this case. Michelle McPhee outlines it in her book. There are unanswered questions about the Boston bombing. Have you ever wondered who made the bombs for the Zanayos? They were simply not smart enough to do it. And they didn't get a recipe from Inspire Magazine either. The person who made those bombs goes unpunished today. All right, guys, we're going to take a little bit of a break. And after the break, we're going to come right back with Michelle McPhee. In the meantime, get on the Internet and buy Michelle McPhee's book, Mayhem. It will change how you look at this case and the U.S. government. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. Hey, Michelle. Welcome to Boston Confidential. I just wanted to introduce you and your book very quickly. Michelle McPhee is the most experienced 
well-known investigative reporter in Boston, and she's just written a book called Mayhem, Unanswered Questions About the Zanea Brothers and the Boston Marathon Bombing. Michelle, how are you today? Very great to see you. It's nice to be home in Boston. You see lovely Eastie behind me. Yes, I've heard you were in L.A. for quite a while. Thanks for ditching the movie stars and coming back to Beantown. You know, I'm going to have to try to do the bicoastal life. I came back because everything in L.A. right now is shut down, including Hollywood. So right. I figured it was time to flee. You know, we can get into this another time, but they let about 3,000 inmates out of prison there. I think they're all living in tents in front of my house. So it was a good time to come back to East Gate. What could go wrong with that, Michelle? What could go wrong? Yeah, it's, it's a beaut. All right. I loved your book. And there's some things, there's a ton of things, actually, that I believe most Bostonians, most Americans don't know. The first is the Boston bombings on April 15, 2015, is actually the Zanaevs coming to an end and not the beginning, correct? Correct. This was, they talk about all the time, what made these guys do it? What was the motive? And, you know, even in the two trials for Johar Zanaev, they never really delved into a motive for this other than a hate for America. And I think it's something much more complicated, as you read in Mayhem. I think that there was a promise made to Tamil Zanaev, who was absolutely in a relationship with some aspect of the federal government as an asset, the confidential informant. He was the whitey bulger of the jihad, a moss crawler, if you will. Promised citizenship and something went wrong and he got mad and he blew us up. You would agree, Barry, is if the government says that they didn't build the bombs, the two brothers, which we know from testimony and court records, who did? And that's right. a huge question to this very day. Is there somebody out there that could continue this mayhem, if you will, that led to two cops being killed, a little boy dying in his mother's arms, and two young women, you know, taking their last breaths on Boylston Street? I mean, these are questions I think the whole country should be asking. Right. I, I still get angry about it to this day. But Michelle, can you take our listeners from the time when Tamerlan sat for a photograph to immigrate from Turkey or the Caucasus to the United States? And there was actually two different people in his photos. What happened there? I, I believe that's actually the beginning of this case. Isn't it alarming? And, you know, to their credit, Megnik Chakrabadi, who I love, from WBUR, from NPR, she right. asked that question to the State Department. How did this happen? And what she was asking about is in his A-file, in Tamlin's and I's A-file, which was classified, sealed. I finally got a copy. Half of it is redacted. But it was three days before the original version of this book, Maximum Harm, was due. And I find two different forms, nearly identical, but not exactly identical, with two completely different people wearing the identical ensemble in government documentation. Now, it's almost hard to describe, but Barry, I mean, when you look at it, it's startling, is it not? One is clearly yes. Tamlin Zanayev at age 16, and one is clearly not Tamlin Zanayev. They're dressed identically. The document identifies both men as Tamlin Zanayev, and it's classic spycraft. Right. They were both in the same sweater, and it was the same writing on both applications. So That's this is, tradecraft. And the State Department, I think, told NPR that, oh, it was a Xeroxing error. That's absurd. <laughs> That's absolutely right. absurd. You couldn't Xerox those documents. Did they Xerox him into a different shirt? <laughs> I mean, it's just absurd. And if you look at 
that A file, it, it has a decent timeline of how the family got here. You might recall that there was an uncle that came out. We were still looking for the brothers, and we all applauded this guy in Maryland, Ruslan Sarni, the uncle of the bombers. He said, my nephews are losers, and he urged himself. At that point, Timolin was dead. Right. It was during the 16-hour man who his little brother right. ran him over and killed him. My nephews are losers, and he urged his younger nephew to turn himself in. Then you take right. a closer look at Ruslan, and you see that he's, a, he's an oil guy from Chechnya who was married to a woman named Samantha Ankara Fuller. Her dad was Graham Fuller. Easily Googleable. I urge all of you to do it because he has such a complicated background, but very public, as a high-ranking CIA official. Graham Fuller was the mastermind behind arming radical Islam against the Russians. So right. Graham Fuller was around back when we gave Osama bin Laden the weapons to fight the Russians. Right. He was, he was very active in Afghanistan. Correct. And he still believed in this mission, that we needed the help of the Muslim community to take on the threat of Russia. Now, whether that's successful or not, who knows? But what I do know is that Graham Fuller just happened to be the station chief for the CIA in Ankara, Turkey, when the Zanaya family shows up and applies for a tourist visa. Right. The parents get a visa. And what a shocking coincidence, Barry. They happen to get a Section 8 voucher to live in the home of a Harvard University Russian professor who defected with the help of who? Graham Fuller. Right. So Graham Fuller is friends with this family, this Russian family, who obviously, as a translator, helped the Americans in some way, and they bought that house in Cambridge. So the family shows up. They are tourists. They get a Section 8 voucher for that house after living with some Chechen friends in Chelsea for a little bit. They bring over their daughters, Elena and Bella, and their little boy who was six at the time, Jahar. Right. Tamlin, who was 16 at the time, stays behind in Ankara, Turkey with Uncle Ruslan and Graham Fuller for six months. When he arrives six months later is when that photo that is alarming to anyone who sees it is taken. So it right. raises a question of what was the intention that Graham Fuller had bringing Tamlin in here. And right. if you look through the life of Zanayev here in the United States, he spent a great deal of his teenage years living with Uncle Ruslan. Right. So there's a lot of law enforcement officials, and I happen to believe this as well, that, that think that he was being groomed as an asset. And a good one, frankly. You know, right. he was a guy who, who went into a very controversial mosque in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You may recall it was started by a terrorist who is now convicted and serving prison time. Right. Uh, we had Lady Al-Qaeda. Afia Siddiqui go through there. They had Tarek Mahana, the um, pharmaceutical student who went through there. They had Ahmed Abusama, who became the spokesperson for ISIS, whose dad was, believe it or not, my mother's endocrinologist at Mass General Hospital. So you had a whole plethora of very violent jihadi in this Cambridge mosque. And right. Tim Zanahev would go in there, create a commotion, and draw people to him to see who shared his mentality of anti-America, Martin Luther King as a kafir, and people who were drawn to him right. were then became part of his inner circle. Two of those people drawn to him were Kairulazan Matnov, who was a Quincy cab driver, and a guy named Ibrahim Todeshev. Two fellow Russians that became friends with Tamlin. They posed right. in front of a black flag of jihad together on the highest of Muslim holidays. We have that photo now in evidence, which was never released by the government, but I've seen it. So 
he drew these people to him. Now, you might recall those names because on September 11th, 2011, on the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, I got a call from a police source saying, we just found three dead guys. It looks like an Al-Qaeda training video in here. The victims were nearly decapitated. There's two Jewish guys that were sexually mutilated. They didn't take any money, it doesn't appear. They sprinkled drugs over the body, and it's the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. This is, it looks like an Al-Qaeda attack. So at the time, I was working for Channel 5, WCBB. I did a piece called What Happened on Harding Ave. I spoke to Jerry Leone, who was the Middlesex County District Attorney at the time. He describes the scene with two assailants, and they're looking for a white Mercedes. Well, what a shocking coincidence. Tamlin's and I just happened to drive a white Mercedes. Oh, and it gets better. Tamlin and Brendan Mess, one of the three victims, were so close that he shared an apartment at one point. And right. Tamlin take Brendan, you know, Tamlin was uh, an acclaimed boxer. You know, he right. won two of the Golden Gloves, which is pretty prestigious in the heavyweight right. category. Sure. Brendan Mess, very accomplished mixed martial arts fighter. So he was MMA. And the two were trained together. And Tamlin would walk around these gyms introducing Brendan Mess as his only American friend. So you would think that Tamlin's and I have, especially when he didn't show up for the memorial service for his one-time best friend or his only American best friend, he didn't show up. He drives right. a white Mercedes. He has ties to radical Islam. We know that. Why? Because in June of 2011, the Russian FSB sent a letter to the FBI that made its way to the Boston field office that led to the FBI counterterrorism unit opening an investigation into Tamlin's and I. Michelle, let me just interrupt. I think the first correspondence they got from the FSB was on March 4th. Oh, correct. You're right. This happens on September 11th, and there's nobody there to pick up the phone and say, holy shit. Well, I mean, it is interesting because the FBI said that they opened a case up against him in June, and they went to his house. And they interviewed him, and they interviewed the crazy mother, and they interviewed his little brother. They didn't right. interview his wife at the time, which they got called out on, but they interviewed all the people. Right. And September, when they find these three dead guys connected to a dude they just interviewed multiple times, they don't think to bring him back out. I mean, right there raises what everybody believes, that there was a relationship between Tamlins and Ive and the federal government that goes back quite a long time. And certainly, any investigation into this bizarre triple murder on September 11th, 2011, was squashed. Subsequent to that, Michelle, just after the murder, Brendan's family and friends went to the Watertown police and said, you have to look at Tamlin Zanayev, who never showed up for the services and was supposed to be sort of best friends with this kid. They named him and nobody even stopped by to talk to him. Allegedly, right? Right. It does get a little bit murkier because it turns out that Jerry Leone very possibly was a referee he, at one of Tamlin's and Ives' fights, which raises an eyebrow about whether he had a relationship with this kid at all or he was working as a liaison to whoever was running Tamlin's and Ives. Uh, but we do know that Jerry abruptly quit his job within weeks of the Boston Marathon, which is unheard of. When you're in a position like a Middlesex County DA, you don't just quit in the middle of your term. It never happened right. before. So, Michelle, how would a fix like this work? The FBI gets that documentation from the FSB. The murder occurs, and they know, somebody has to know, Tamlin is likely involved in this. And does the FBI call the district attorney and say, take this 
in a different direction? Or how does the fix work? Well, I mean, I think there's no way of knowing exactly how that kind of a fix works. But during that time frame, there was a very important investigation underway by the Department of Homeland Security in Maine. And one of the targets was a friend of Tamlin's and I, a guy named Hamadi Hassan, who was also very close to Tamlin. And these guys were selling crack up and down the East Coast in order to fund Al-Shabaab in Africa. So this is a pretty major terrorism investigation. If you read, and I have, and now what's interesting is the entire case is sealed. You can't get anything anymore. But at the time, there were court documents that reported some of the wiretaps. They clearly had wiretaps up on this case. And it, and it was led to a massive takedown of a lot of very dangerous, terror-connected drug dealers. And right. they had wiretaps between a confidential informant and this guy, Hamadi Hassan. And what was interesting is some of the locations for the meets, like, okay, meet me here. It'll be the 7-Eleven near Tamlin's house. Meet me here. It'll be the parking lot of Y Crew Gym that we know Tamlin frequented. So I don't think it takes a brain surgeon to wonder if perhaps Tamlin Zanayev is that CI that was very actively working the case at the time of these triple murders. If they right. pulled Tamlin Zanayev out and charged him with these homicides, then that case goes south. And right. then you have these drug-dealing terrorists raising money for the atrocities that were happening right. in Africa. So I think that none of those families of the three victims, Raphael Tekken, I went to his family's house. They told me to buzz off. Eric Weissman was interestingly facing his third strike in a drug case. His family right. wasn't exactly like looking to bring all of this out into the open again. And then right. Brendan's family was gone. He had nobody except his little brother. And at that time, when I worked for Channel 5, I interviewed the brother on camera. And his name was Dylan Mix. And off camera, Dylan said something very startling to me. And believe it or not, Barry, I found the notebook, which is a miracle. But in it, he said, I remembered him saying something about the girlfriends. So I went to go look for the notebook. And it said, my brother's girlfriend is real shady, and so is her friend, Tam. Now, of course, in 2011, that meant nothing to me. But now you look at the case, the woman who found the bodies of the three men in Waltham, Massachusetts, after that triple murder, was a woman from the Sudan who met her boyfriend, Brendan Mess, through Tamlin. This woman went to the stat radical mosque that they were trying to infiltrate, the feds, that is. The idea that that woman fled the country shortly after the murders made a lot of people that were close to these three dead men suspicious. And right. certainly, Tamlin's name was mentioned over and over and over again to law enforcement, but nobody was clamoring for justice. They had this ongoing case in Portland, Maine. I believe that Tamlin was a very important part of that case. He was the CI that was recording these conversations and getting these guys to implicate themselves in this terrible case. So it's very easy. For a guy like Jerry, who was a former U.S. attorney, you remember, Jerry Leone did the Richard Reed case. Now, Richard yeah. Reed is in the same supermax prison as Jahar Zanai right now. You know, he, yes. he was also the liaison with all of the DAs in Massachusetts to the federal intelligence community. Right. So I don't want to point fingers at anybody, but I think that this is a pretty good sandwich to right. make a triple murder that no one cares about disappear. Now, just to touch base a little bit on that actual crime scene, these kids, for the lack of a better word, young men, were put on their knees yep. and almost beheaded with what was believed to be a sword. And two of the Jewish people were mutilated sexually and graphically, correct? Correct. 
I mean, I think the cops were shocked at the amount of blood that was found in that scene. And that's why Al-Qaeda training video kept coming up. I mean, we all saw those horrific images right. of journalists being beheaded. And it was very reminiscent of those ISIS videos that we sadly were forced to watch for quite a long time and not too long ago. That was their preferred method of execution at the time that these bodies right. were found. So it was an obvious jihadi connection. Now let's go back to March. The FSB told us that Tamil Zanayev was talking to some pretty radical jihadi. June, right. the FBI talks to Tamil Zanayev, says, ah, we don't think he's a radical terrorist at all. September, the Russians again reach out, this time to the CIA. Listen, this dude is definitely dangerous and his mother has jihadi relatives. So this is the second warning. Oh, no big deal. Tamlin is never questioned in this case. And I truly believe that it's because of this operation that anyone can Google. It's called Operation Run This Town. And it took down this crack dealing group of people who were raising money for terrorist activities overseas. By the way, there's an even bigger tie that comes out much, much, much later. These guys that were dealing crack just happened to be the owners of the gun that was used to murder Sean Collier. Lent a gun to a guy named Stefan Silva. Stefan Silva was friends with Jahar. Jahar gets that gun that they used to execute Sean Collier with from the Eritrean drug crew that we've been talking about that Tamlin had infiltrated in 2011. So right. I don't think we dismiss this Eritrean drug crew from being a big part of this case either. It right. all just happened to be the time that three, these three bodies were found. What a mess. So this murder is committed and it kind of gets buried by the authorities and we're seeing why now. But one of the suspects that was involved with Tamalin at that point, and I'm going to butcher his name, help me out here. I remember I talked about the two guys that he befriended at the mosque. Yes. Abraham Tokov and Kyrylazov Matnov. Yes. So on the day that these bodies were found, September 11th, 2011, Kyrylazov Matnov and... Ibrahim Todashev were roommates living in Brighton, Massachusetts. Right. Now, why do those names matter? Because after the Boston Marathon and those terrible bombs were detonated and Martin Richard died in his mom's arms and those two young women gasped their last breaths on Boylston Street, which is just absolutely positively horrifying. Then, of course, you had the assassination of MIT police officer Sean Collier, which we just talked about. Right. And we had later death of a Boston police officer, Dennis Simmons. And of course, you have people who lost limbs and hundreds of people were maimed. I get a call from a guy who's a correction officer, a friend of mine who just happens to like fighting. And he said, Michelle, remember that story you did in Waltham a few years ago? I clearly remember meeting Tamlins and I with Brendan Mess. Now think about that. Right. That guy was talking about a fight years and years earlier. And he remembered Tamlin Zanayev because he's a huge imposing figure. We're expected to believe that the FBI agents who interviewed Tamlin multiple times in 2011 didn't recognize him. Right. That's absurd. But right there, right. that's absurd. And every cop in the state was pissed. And every cop in the state was encouraging me to take a very hard look into the FBI. And I'm not just blaming the FBI, but certainly there's a lot of uh, initials that are involved in Tamlin's and I, beginning with the CIA in Grand Fuller when he was 16 years old. You have drug squad, you have the other. So there's so many ways in which they could be, so it's very plausible for the FBI to put out a statement, which they did after the marathon saying, we did not recruit Tamlin's and I as a federal informant. 
well, technically they did recruit them. The CIA did. It's like, we didn't recruit them. Okay, well, did you use them? Because clearly you did. Tamalin never worked a day in the United States for the most part, right, Michelle? His death certificate reads never worked. How did he get a white Mercedes? Correct. And how did he go to Russia and stay there for six months on a nice long vacation? Right. That kind of brings me to my next question. After 2011, Tim continues to be radicalized. And is that when he heads back to Russia? So remember, the FSB kept telling us, we think this guy's going to come to the motherland and hook up with some very dangerous radicals. He intends on doing harm to America. The people here he is talking to are horrendous jihadi. One of them is a Canadian then was hiding in the forest, which is parlance the terrorist training camp. Um, and we, right. and Plotnikov got picked up in Russia by counterterrorism forces, and they went through his phone and found tons of text messages, alarming text messages from Tamlin's and I. So, right. think about it, those two letters that the FBI now says, and according, now look folks, everything I'm talking about, you know I have in reports, court documents, there's nothing that's not in writing that I'm telling you. So in the right. Inspector General report that was written by Michael Horowitz, our Inspector General, they talk about how these letters prompted Tamlin to be put on two terror watch lists. So by September 2011, shortly after these homicides in Waltham, he was put on two terror watch lists. That should have prohibited him from leaving the country. He didn't have an American passport. His Russian passport was about to expire. He's on two terror watch lists. The Russians told us he was going to go to Russia and join the jihad. You think it'd be a flag to make sure this guy does not get out of the USA. More importantly, when he stays in Russia for six months, longer, which is important, he never should have been allowed back in because even if I date an Italian guy and he stays in America for longer than six months, he's not getting back in, right? If you're here on a green card or a permanent resident card, anybody who has immigrant friends knows this. You can't stay out of the country for longer than six months. You just can't. So he was on two terror watch lists, flies out of Boston, I think to New York and then on to Russia. Completely unclear who paid for that flight. Right. So I think there was a flag on his computer database information to immigrate. And I believe that was to say, leave him alone and let him travel. Well, it's possible. But what we do know for a fact is that Janet Napolitano was grilled about this. She was the only one who showed up in front of Congress to be grilled about, you know, the inspector general's findings. And... This before the Inspector General's findings, but Congress clearly had the same questions that the Inspector General would later ask. And they asked about this travel. And she said very clearly, and it's very easy to find on C-SPAN, she said, I can't answer any questions about channels and I have without being in a classified setting. Why? Right. Why? The guy's dead. He was dragged to his death by his own brother by then. The dates of his travel were juxtaposed. And that's when she clammed up and said she needed to go into a classified setting. She said that they did ping Tamlin's ex of ping, but the spelling of his name was off. So we didn't really realize it was him. That is utter nonsense. Do you know how much money the federal taxpayer has paid into a system to ensure that these complicated names, you think that they don't have a system to jumble these names so that the Tamlin with an E, spelled Tamlin, doesn't get in and out when he's on a terror watch list. That's absolutely absurd. These guys have multiple IDs. And by the way, you know, just to go back to the wealthy of Triple Mur again, you might recall that in the weeks after the marathon, Ibrahim Todashev, who fled his apartment. Now, the two names that I told you, the ones that Tam Milan befriended at that mosque, Hyruluzan Matinov and Ibrahim Todashev. Hyruluzan Matinov was followed around by the FBI for a year. And he finally told them when he got arrested 
that he lived with Ibrahim Todashev on September 11, 2011, when these murders took place. He said he can't remember if he found a bloody towel or not. And he said that Ibrahim Todashev gave him his EBT card for the rest of the Reds and fled that night. That night. Now he's in Orlando, Florida. And in May of 2013, after the bombs were detonated, the FBI went down to Orlando to interview him. And sure enough, this guy ends up in some sort of altercation where he's shot multiple times by a Boston FBI field. So dead men tell no tales. We'll never find out. But what we do know is that when this melee broke out, Abraham was writing out a confession saying, me and Tim went to the house on Harding Ave. We tied up these guys. It was got to be a robbery. So he was in the middle of writing this confession. The confession right. is flat with his blood now because he's shot dead as he's writing the confession. Right. If I remember correctly, he lifted up a coffee table, and this is a mixed martial artist, and he hit an FBI agent so hard that it required nine stitches to close. There was no other way to subdue this man other than taking his life. I completely believe that. And what's also worth noting is that what set him off to break the table leg off and attack the FBI agent was that one of the state troopers from Middlesex CPAC, from the homicide investigators, looked up at the walls or a sword, literally a sword that they suspect could have been used to decapitate those three guys right on September 11th. So they removed the sword from the wall because they were respectful of him. I mean, it raises some questions though too, Barry. Look, if if you're interviewing a very dangerous mixed martial arts fighter, they knew he was dangerous, why? Because he got into an altercation in Boston where the Boston cop who arrested him said it took eight guys to bring him to the ground and it was like fighting a refrigerator was the exact right. thing. It was massive. They know this. They go to his house. They don't drag him down to a police station. The Orlando FBI field office. They take their shoes off out of respect for his faith and go in this house barefoot with this dangerous dude who has a sword hanging on the wall. I mean, it raises an eyebrow about whether there was a relationship going on with this guy too. Why would they right. interview him at his house like that? I'm not saying that the shooting wasn't justified. It was justified. We know that. It was cleared by the Florida Attorney General. But, I mean, unfortunately, we don't know the real story of why they killed those three guys because he didn't finish writing out his confession before he was shot multiple times. Right, yes. He was in the process, and he had already, in this short confession, had already implicated Tamerlan in doing this job. And I wonder if he would have implicated his other roommate there that he left from Boston. I don't know if that was two people or the three. My rule is on Matt would later get locked up by the feds after the marathon. And he said that Ibrahim Chodoshev not only left town on September 11th and he couldn't remember it was a bloody towel, that the three of them had gone to a mosque and taken a photo in front of the black flag of jihad, which makes you wonder, okay, what kind of mosque is hanging a black flag of jihad? And no, so throughout this whole case, you have to say that FBI was trying to do the right thing. This is a mosque. It was started by a convicted terrorist. Like like all these prestigious students that were in town on student visas started this mosque. One of them is a convicted terrorist. He tried to literally assassinate the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Yes. And he was Qaddafi's bodyguard. And he started that mosque. Right. Still open today. Still open today. You know, if, if somebody drops up a heart attack, firefighters and the cops are not allowed inside the mosque. They have to bring them out to the corner. I didn't know that, no. It's crazy. I didn't know that either until, because I called every cop I knew and, and every firefighter I knew in Cambridge and said, hey, have you ever seen this black flag of jihad hanging in there? They're like, we're not right. allowed in. They bring them out to the right. ground. 
unbelievable. And the nexus of both these cases, the Boston bombing and the horrific murder in Watertown is the mosque, but it's also this gym that they all hung out at. Look, I believe in that mosque brawling system. It was started by Ray Kelly and the NYPD shortly after 9-11. He right. geniusly recruited very successful patriotic Muslim Americans. They became ghosts. Nobody ever recognizes the work that they do because obviously right. we can't identify them. But these are people who put their lives on the line and infiltrated their own community to help us war terrorism. And, right. and frankly, the Times Square bomber who got $2,000 where? A few blocks away from the Watertown shootout. You know, right. there's a lot of connections to terrorism in Watertown. No one knows why. But there are a lot of people who have successfully helped out law enforcement and in fact became undercover operatives, you right. know, based on love for America. But when right. you have they call them rakers, right? Rakers, exactly. Rakers. Yeah. And these rakers, you know, did really good work. And so I don't fault the FBI in any way for trying to get to you remember right. after the marathon bombing, they had that massive interfaith mass with Obama, with President then President Obama. You know who right. wasn't invited? The Imam for that mosque because he was on a terror watch list. Yeah, he couldn't pass the background check. Correct. I mean, I don't blame the feds for trying to get Tamlin to get some good intel out of that mosque. But what the problem is, is that clearly this guy was working for someone. Something went terribly wrong. And the right. problem that I have is not being honest with the public right now, because this has happened over and over and over again. We know the Pulse nightclub shooter, his father was on the FBI payroll. We now right. know a DEA informant was behind the Taj attacks in India. So this keeps happening over and over and there's zero accountability. And look at the cops that are getting locked up. They should be locked up. But I think accountability across the board is what's needed here. And the FBI literally flipped off Congress and said, believe you, we're not coming. Right. And then we tried to get answers about what really happened and what went wrong with the marathon. Michelle, when Tamalin went back to Russia, the phrase they use is it's coded. We're going to go to the forests. Yeah, that means that we're going to train in the terrorist camps. Right. And he did that. And he met with six, seven known terrorists at this mosque. He was photographed there by the FSB and maybe even the CIA. But tell us about what happened to the people that Tamalin met in the forest. So Tamalin gets out of the country, despite these two terror watch lists. He does exactly what the Russian soldiers he was going to do. He hooked up with his mother's relatives, who were jihadi sympathizers. He just happened to be wearing a wire, which no one ever talks about, but he was wiretapping his conversations with his cousin, who was the leader of this group that sympathized with jihadists. You know, it was right. a group that supported their activities. And you might recall that what started the FSB's investigation into Tamlin and Russia was when they picked up that kid from Canada, William Plotnikov. Right. Well, within a few months of Tamalin's arrival in Dagestan, they called them the American. They also called them Muaz, which would become important later. But right. he met with this terrible, I mean, God, he was a very savage killer. A young guy who would recruit children to blow up police stations and civilian targets in Russia. Right. I mean, being a cop in Russia is a dangerous job in the world. I think twice a week, somebody gets killed right. in this region. So... He goes to meet with this guy. His name is Nadal Hassan at this very controversial mosque. That guy is in deep underground hideout. Well, after meeting with Tamil and all of a sudden 
the counterterrorism officials know where he is and he gets dragged and killed after a right. big fight where a grenade is launched and you know they let his family right. go but it, you can see this standoff online they videotaped it right so, this was an actual battle between the russian forces and the people that tamalin had just met with correct and then another one would happen in july so this is the most important one is so that canadian guy that he was texting with is in the forest with some very radical dangerous violent men training and tamalin we believe comes to visit and when you know that the counterterrorism forces roll in this is a military op now you have tanks you have dozens of SWAT guys military battle the battle went on for 12 hours. The jihadi were yeah. also really armed. In the end, everyone is dead, you know, in the compound, including his friend William Plotnikov, the Canadian right. boxer he was corresponding with. A Russian interior ministry, their version of the CIA, loses right. a guy. Doku Umarov, who was always known as the Russian Osama bin Laden, he ran a terrorist portal. You remember, he had his own website. It was like the Drudge Report for terrorists, right? Right. And Doku Umarov, threw up a story about these poor victims, you know, these poor guys, their location was given to the Russian aggressors by a confidential informant. So the terrorists were talking about an informant who gave up the location of this terrorist training camp. And right. wouldn't you know, the team just happens to fly out of the country on a one-way ticket the very next day. Right. No clue who paid for that ticket. And again, Barry, that's another red flag if I flew out of Aruba on a one-way ticket, they take a close look at you. Right. Oh, yeah. This guy is on two terror watch lists, coming back from a terrorist hotbed, buys a one-way ticket. He's overseed his American green card. His Russian passport is now expired. He reported it stolen. He comes back completely the epitome of a guy who should be stopped by customs. Long beard. I mean, not to profile, but look, the guy's on two right. terror watch. comes back looking entirely different from how he left. So right. they should stop this guy. Well, he was not stopped. We now know that. And two weeks after he gets back, good boy, attaboys happen in the form of his naturalization is on the fast track. Even though right. he's not in any way qualified to become naturalized, he's on the fast track to citizenship. All of this, I think we can all agree, points to a relationship with the government. He did good work as an asset. They tracked right. and killed people deserve to be taken off the planet, right? So a quid pro quo relationship, Michelle, he tracked those terrorists that were later killed. That was his payment to the United States government. Their quid pro quo in reverse was giving him citizenship. Correct. Correct. And instead, I mean, look, I think the culpability of the FBI pretty much starts here because it's not their guy. It's clearly... the asset for another agency, I suspect that we both know it was the CIA, considering his uncle's very close relationship with Graham Fuller, they lived in the same house, right? They right. ran check charities. Like, so clearly the CIA begins with all this, but the CIA can't help this guy get a citizenship when he's on a couple of terror watch lists, doesn't have a job, and punch his girlfriend in the face, making him ineligible for it. The only people right. that can do that is the FBI. Right. He continues to try to get citizenship but at one point, he runs into an administrative roadblock. It wasn't I a no. It cleared up by his handler. And that's where I think the big screw-up happens is, you know, the whole job of his handler, who, by the way, was denounced and removed from office. They'll never tell you that, but the guy's gone. 
He's gone. Right. The guy who was in right. charge of getting TMUN his citizenship on behalf of the agency has gone. I think he went to Buffalo or Ohio, someplace that you don't want to go. He got bounced. Right. The only FBI agent who didn't get a award from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Right. He got reassigned, you ready for this, to the MS-13 case that I'm now writing a book about, which was at the time considered the lowest, right, like you're on the CTU, and now right. you're doing MS-13 chasing gangbangers around this park right here in Eastie. They don't want right. to do that. No. So clearly they were pissed at him, screwed up. And I think what right. happened was he was supposed to hold his hand and help him get the citizenship with USCIS. If you read the Inspector General report, which anybody can read, and anyone can email me, michelle at michellemcd.com. You can find me through my website. Right. And I'll answer any question. I'll send you the corresponding documentation. But if you read the whole report, there are emails where his handler and the FBI was like, he's fine. Give him his citizenship. You know, the bureaucrat in USCIS responsible for processing this application is like, no way. He doesn't have a job. Punched his girlfriend in the face. He's in violation of the moral turpitude clause. Think I'm putting my name on this? No way. Do it. Right. No. Do it. No. Finally, in January 2013, weeks before you went to Phantom Fireworks and tried to buy the loudest and biggest right. fireworks in the store, he goes to USCIS one more time in downtown Boston. They say, dude, you got this arrest record. We need some sort of way to clear it up. He gets so angry, he flips out right. in there, demands a name change application, and changes his name to Mulas, which was his undercover name in Russia. So right. this is all in records. Everything I'm telling you is in writing, and I can right. prove. And then we all know what happened on the terrible day of Patriots Day, 2013. Like this is a right. this is a hard that day. that day at the Kennedy Building leads directly to Boylston Street, and he just got pissed off for an administrative error. The his handle would have corrected that. Correct, but that was his job, and he didn't do it, which is why he got camp. Right? right, so Cam goes apeshit and demands the name change, and as you say, just a short time later, he's up buying the black powder for the fireworks. By the way, which was never found anywhere connected to the Zanayas. You recall, right. there's zero evidence in his house, in his car, anywhere, that those brothers built these bombs, which raises right. the immediate question, who did? Well, there's exactly. a very curious thing you might recall that happened and on the night that Sean Colley was assassinated with this bizarre MIT event. Right. What was strange in court to a lot of reporters is that the murder of Sean Collier and the evidence that was released by the feds in court was a video taken from about a mile and a half away from the scene, literally docks. And, you know, the prosecutor you read in the book didn't say the brothers, he said the figures walked towards the cruiser. Right. Even if Jahan pulled the trigger... We know he was guilty, which is true. It was a conspiracy murder. He provided the gun. But it raises a question about, hold on a minute. Why are we seeing video? I actually literally got from a source stills from a video camera right over his head. It, this, so there were a lot of questions about that night. The most important and glaring question was, initially, the state police colonel at the time, Tim Alvin, came out and said that we believe that the murder of Sean Collier is connected to a nearby 7-Eleven robbery. Then he came back and backpedaled it. Like, right. nervously backpedaled it. Like, the feds grabbed him and said, you got to take that back. So that right. made me curious. And I spent about six months chasing that video of the 7-Eleven right. robbery until I finally obtained it through a Freedom of Information Act request. You can clearly see Jahar in the backdrop of this video with a man that has since been identified, at least by his family, as Daniel Morley. Now, let me, let me take you into Daniel Morley's world. 
Dana Morley just happened to be employed at MIT in a lab, a lab where Sean Collier was killed, not Bob. Right. Now, he had been terminated from MIT at the time of the Marathon Blast. However, when Daniel Morley was arrested 55 days after the Boston Marathon at his mother's boyfriend's house in Topsfield, Massachusetts, cops made an alarming discovery, a number of alarming discoveries, in fact. It was a crazy night. Topfield police is called to the scene after an elderly woman crawls out of a window to escape her son in her bathrobe. She's hysterical. She's on the street. She brought her cell phone. She calls 911. Her elderly companion follows a short time later. They had an altercation with their son, Daniel Morley, who wrote on her face and he just snapped. And during this awful encounter with this hulking young man, because I've met him and interviewed him, he said, I've done something I'm going to have to answer to God for. Now, cops show up. He refuses to come outside. There's a standoff. They have to cancel church the next day because this goes into Sunday morning. They finally get this guy bundled into an ambulance to take him to a cuckoo ward, a top skilled hospital. And the parents give the police permission to search his room. What do they find in there, Barry? Every single component of the pressure cooker box. The green circuit boards that we've seen a million times. Babies, ball bearings. He has a Russian assault rifle. He has videos on his computer making a laser detonator. And you may recall that there were two bombs at the marathon. And to this day, only one detonator has been recovered. Right. Now, he gets arrested that night. And there's a superseding indictment that comes out a couple of weeks after Dana Morley gets arrested and put into the Topfield hospital. And I'll get to that in a minute, because what was important that night? As this whole craziness is going on, and the state police bomb squad is there, you know, they're finding all this alarming materials. What really caught their eye was a recipe for thermite, which is a bomb accelerant that you can make in a lab like the one you worked in at MIT, that was scrawled on the back of an empty box top. What was the box top? A fake pressure cooker. The exact size and brand that was used at the marathon is so rare, it's only sold at Macy's. So this isn't just like everyday pressure cooker you get anywhere. This right. was a pretty specific pressure cooker. He's got a recipe for a bomb accelerant. And to this day, they have not explained, the government, I do not believe it has explained why the brothers were at MIT at all. What would right. they do in the middle of a quad when there's a manhunt for them? You know, right. it was five hours early that the FBI released photos of the suspect black hat, suspect white hat, claiming they didn't recognize them, which we don't believe. And then right. you ask yourself the question, like, why did they go to MIT after that? You see a recipe for thermite, it makes sense that they had the other pressure cooker bomb. Right. And if they wanted that thermite, that would be the place to go. Right. So, Molly's arrested. In the middle of them processing the scene, the FBI shows up out of nowhere. Right. So, a state actually put out over the radio who called the thieves oh because God. it was so unheard of that they would just show up. Right. I didn't know it. No one called them. It didn't go to the brick. You know, like no one called them. It didn't go to the Boston Regional Intelligence Center. They just showed up. And the Topsfield police to this day are furious because the FBI came in and took all the evidence away, took the case away. To this day, Dana Morley hasn't been charged with a single crime. He right. was arraigned. He wasn't arraigned for the bomb materials, which were illegal. He wasn't arraigned for the gun that he had, for the unsecurity ammunition that he had, for assaulting his elderly mother, for assaulting her boyfriend. Nothing. He never was arraigned on a single criminal charge. They hid him away at Tewksbury State Hospital for two years. I went to the hospital to visit him, and I said, Danny, did you build the bombs? And it was one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and I was terrified. Right. The huge guy comes down, and he didn't say, what bombs? What are you talking about? He shrugged his shoulders, smirked at me, and went, 
wasn't me in a very snarky way. Right after Jahar is convicted, you know, he gets out of Topsfield Hospital and goes back to his mom's house. But in the meantime, I've spent a year with his photo. He was on a mass most wanted. He's not anymore. Right. Because that photo has been identified by multiple people as Daniel Morley. And the Cambridge police to this day will not tell me why they haven't questioned Morley in connection with the 7-Eleven robbery for which his own family members have identified him. Because the FBI told them not to. Well, here you go. And remember, the Cambridge police weren't big fans of the FBI the night the father got killed anyhow. Right. That night, they were getting 911 calls from citizens. You know, remember, the press conference happens around 5 o'clock. I'm there. A few hours later, they start getting calls from concerned Cambridge people. There's weird cars idling in front of my house. Cambridge police roll up. Hold on, Michelle. One, one second. The bombs go off. Yep. The manhunt begins. And... The FBI is already in Cambridge and Watertown. Correct. And they're not telling the Cambridge police why they're there. The Cambridge police actually pulled two FBI agents over. Yeah, there's this chase at one point between a Cambridge cop and an FBI vehicle. And then the FBI put out a statement saying they were there for an unrelated matter. Meanwhile, the FBI... Earth believes that the FBI was doing anything other than looking for these bombers in Cambridge that night. That's absurd. I don't even know what to say anymore with this agency. None of these questions have been asked publicly of the FBI. Comey right. refused to answer questions. Mueller refused to answer questions. He quits in April 2013. And the fact that the Boston media isn't demanding answers to these questions, it's terrifying to me, Barry, because the book lays out a very clear case that something is a rot. Whether you believe my assertions in the book or not, there are unanswered questions about oh, absolutely. Then you realize that Daniel Morley got out of the hospital and got hired by the state to do what? He drives for the ride. He right. beat up his mother and another elderly person, and he now drives for the ride. Right. Now, if it was my grandmother on the ride, I wouldn't want Daniel Morley, who told police he did something he had to, oh, and by the way, he also knew Tamalins and I have, and had been to the same Waikou boxing gym as the rest of these guys. Right. What a pack of nuts. Absolute nuts. <laughs> well, and- Barry, we can talk about it for the next 27 hours, but... I hope it's worth reading, at least. In- oh, it is. This is a fantastic book, Michelle. I loved it. And I hope it gets more exposure because even the Watertown murder itself, it could be a book. I mean, it's just fascinating in how they discount these victims and their families. There's like a checklist. Could we pick up more Muslim criminals or do we satisfy justice that happened here in Middlesex County? And they choose the former. Correct. And in the end, it's kind of sad because that case they took down didn't prevent the assassination of Sean Collier with the gun that they had obtained. Right. It's a horrible thing. And it's a Boston thing, right? Wherever the FBI seems to be, there seems to be some type of cover-up, some type of dodge. Listen, I like to throw out the good work sometimes that they did. And I have to tell you, the FBI case on the MS-13 that I'm now writing a book about, which, which is my next project, which right. will be an HBO series, The Ball Goes Well, Hollywood Reopens. That sure. case was phenomenal. And without the FBI, we couldn't have taken it down. There were right. dead kids all over this park. I'm not exaggerating. Right here, dead right. kids on a Christmas day. You know, the victim of machete attacks. And, and the story is way more complicated than what you're getting in these sound bites. It's not just the savages. These kids have no options. They have no choices. And they had a group of very dedicated police officers led by an FBI agent named Jeff Wood and another guy named John Kelly 
despite the fact that they had this guy who got dumped from the marathon case into right. it, the MS-13 case was wildly successful and there hasn't been an MS-13 murder in this town since. Right. So they do do good work. The problem is when there's no accountability at the top, Right. it makes these are doing the job look atrocious. Right. It seems like they get a mandate to do a certain job and then get tunnel vision on just doing that and they don't cooperate with other agencies or god damn it it's just a mess three times we're going to have this happen whitey bulger mark rosetti you know over and over and over again right what worked the case i just talked about was true collaboration between stadies fbi local cops awesome gang unit the school police that's what made that case work the problem right. with the cases that we're constantly getting bungled is that the FBI thinks they're the be-all and end-all, and right. they don't care. And that's why, and many people believe, and this is why Mayhem was so important to me. Look, Barry, I made no money on that book. Zero. Literally zero. And I rewrote it for free, too, right? <laughs> because I'm so angry. Why? Because Ron Collier shouldn't be dead right now. Right. There's no freaking way the FBI didn't know who these brothers were. Right. The fact that they were running around MIT doing God knows what. And the story about them trying to get the gun is complete BS. Right. Complete BS. Michelle, there is one other instance I wanted to touch base with you. After the bombings, the local police department set up basically in the old army base in South Boston. Oh, yeah. The command center. And there was two unknown FBI agents reviewing photographs on a laptop. And they cooperated so little with other DEA and Boston police that a DEA agent finally got up and said, what are you doing over there? What are you looking at? And there was a kerfuffle. The two FBI agents were escorted out, never to be seen again. Is that correct? That's correct. And what the DEA agent accused these guys of, you know who these guys are. Someone's going to get killed. And two days later, Sean Collier was killed. Right. And my phone blew up that day because, you know, there's not a lot of love lost between locals and the FBI anyhow. But right. to have the guys looking at photos under their desks pissed a lot of people off. And it almost turned into a fist fight. As a matter of fact, there's a scene in the HBO pilot about MS-13. Now, obviously, there's this little overlap with the agent getting dumped there. Right. But we have a scene at the Black Falcon Terminal where that agent that we're talking about gets his face punched in. Right. I want to show my friends. <laughs> Which is the way I always wanted it to end, that story. Right. No, that would definitely have been a better ending. I know we're running out of time and we could do this all day, but after your MS-13 project is out, maybe you come back on. I would love that. And congratulations on the new podcast. I love it. You know, it's funny. I'm from East Boston. Do you know where Katrina Homer's body got taken? To the East Boston funeral home over here. I think I was about 17 years old. Yeah. And my friend snuck us in because he owned the funeral home. So we saw that half of the body. Oh, my Lord. Which I'll never forget. I wish I did. It's one of those images that just talking about it, I get. Well, thanks for the kind words for Boston Confidential. We'll definitely have you on again. Thank you, Barry. Great job. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Boston Confidential. Great job with this. Thank you, Barry. Talk soon. All right, everyone. We're back. That was an amazing interview. It went a little long, so I'm going to break this off into two-part episode, and we'll Come back next week with the second part, and we'll get involved more with the bomb maker and the horrific homicide that occurred prior to the Boston bombing in Watertown in 2011. 
So I'm going to leave you here. Have a good weekend. Enjoy the weather. Get down Cape Cod if you can. But we'll be back next week, and there'll be some more heavy lifting with this case. I'd appreciate it if you came back. Share this episode. Give us five stars on Apple if you can. And go have a good time. Summertime, guys. I'm your host, Barry McGuire. And thanks for joining us on Boston Confidential. See you next week.